John 12, we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 to 11. John 12, 1 to 11. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, this morning, our hearts confess with our mouths, even as we have just sung, all I have is Christ. All I need is Christ. Heavenly Father, the testimony of that song is the testimony of so many of our hearts. We were in darkness. We were in sin. We were under condemnation. That is what is rightfully ours. And yet even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And by faith alone, we have been saved. We who were your enemies, are now friends of God, sons of God, who cry out, Abba, Father. All I have is Christ. Heavenly Father, even this morning as we turn our attention to this passage, we pray that you would draw our hearts to Christ all the more, that we would see him for who he is, that we would fall down that we would worship with everything that is within us. We pray that you'd be honored in this time. We pray that your spirit would work through your word. We pray that you would give me boldness, authority to proclaim the truth of your word with clarity. That you would be glorified in all that is said and done. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you this morning have an iPhone? You raise your hand. How many of you maybe don't have an iPhone? How many of you have an a Apple computer or an iPad or something along those lines? Raise your hands. Apple is something that, it, it's a brand that has infiltrated our culture, if you will. It, it is everywhere. The name most clearly associated with Apple is probably Steve Jobs. It's a name that if I mention, almost everyone in here probably knows that name. I was looking it up this week, and, and it's amazing. It doesn't seem that it was this long ago, but it was 10 years ago this year that Steve Jobs passed away in 2011. And yet here we sit 10 years later, and his name is still easily recognized. His products are still in many of our pockets. The advances that Steve Jobs made in technology and design, the impact that he made on the world will last for generations. But Steve Jobs' life could have turned out very differently. You see, he started out very successfully. But he was forced out of the company that he started. He was forced out of Apple just nine years after it was founded. 
He went from being hugely successful in his 20s to fired by the company that he had started by age 30. He didn't give up, however. Jobs got to work. He started two new, hugely successful companies. He started a company that you may have heard of called Pixar. And then he started another company called Next. And a few years later, at age 42, Apple bought out Next, and Jobs found himself once again at the head of the company that he had once started, Apple. However, this time the situation was different. This time Apple was on the verge of bankruptcy. And as Jobs took over, he immediately got to work and he immediately began to make changes. From the outside, and even from many on the inside, Jobs' actions seemed reckless. He immediately began to make massive cuts. He cut what many people were thought promising products. People who, who, who knew their stuff were fired. But Jobs was not, Steve Jobs was not just cutting jobs and projects with no direction. Rather, the cuts and the jobs that were done away with were made because Steve Jobs saw them as necessary in order to save Apple. Apple needed a fearless leader, someone to come in and to make the necessary bold moves required to save the company. He didn't care about how people felt about it. He cared about what needed to be done. Turns out that Jobs was not crazy. In fact, he was right. He had the right perspective. He saw the true state of Apple, and his actions were not radical. They turned out to be appropriate. As we turn our attention this morning to John 12, verses 1 to 11, we see a shocking, almost reckless act. As Mary's heart overflows in thanks and worship of Jesus. John 12 begins with Mary's shocking devotion to Jesus, and it will end with a section meditating on the Jews' rejection of Jesus. What a contrast in this chapter. It starts with one who is so devoted to Jesus that she is willing to give everything. And it ends with a nation who rejects him, who won't believe. We're coming to a major transition in the book of John. The stakes are higher than ever. John 12 records for us the last few public appearances of Christ before he transitioned to the more private moments of the last week of his life. In this chapter, we see the fallout of Lazarus' resurrection, as we saw a few weeks ago in John 11. And the story is being pushed forward toward the cross. This morning, we'll see that Mary's act is not needlessly wasteful. It is not reckless, as it may appear from the outside. It is appropriate and it is necessary. Jesus is worthy of unmeasured worship and it is not Mary who is wrong, but all those who would oppose or restrain her. And this morning we will see a charge to give to Jesus the unrestrained worship that is due His name. 
As we work our way through these verses, we'll see a fearless woman, a faithless disciple, and a fickle crowd. The first thing we see in the first three verses of John chapter 12 is a fearless woman. In fact, here in the first two verses of John 12, we find ourselves in a familiar place. We find ourselves where we were in John 11. We find ourselves once again in the town of Bethany. Lazarus is there. Mary and Martha. This family that we've come to know and to love so well. This time it's six days before the Passover. This is the third Passover recorded for us in the book of John. And it's the final Passover that Jesus will celebrate in his earthly ministry. John 12 starts out, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Notice how careful John is here not just to let us know that Lazarus is present, but to be sure that there is no confusion about which Lazarus this is, in case there was any confusion. This is the Lazarus who had been dead, whom he, Jesus, had raised from the dead. This is the Lazarus whom we had seen in John 11. This amazing work, this display of Jesus' power as he shows that he has power not just over the winds and the waves, he has power over life itself. Here in John 12, we have both the resurrector and the resurrected sitting down for a meal. What a meal it must have been. You've probably been asked this question before. It's a great icebreaker question. Sometimes you get together for games or meals, and this will be a question that is thrown out there. If you could go back to a moment in history, where would you go? I love that question. I love history, and so I love considering those kinds of things. And there's many great answers to this question. It often leads to a fun conversation, and you learn things about people as they answer that question. This week, as I was studying this passage, this dinner party was quickly climbing my list of places I would like to go in history. I would love to have been present for this. I mean, what a conversation this must have been. What had Lazarus seen? What did he remember? What did it feel like to be resurrected? I can almost picture in my eye the, the twinkle in Jesus and Lazarus' eyes as they are discussing this, as they are talking about things that, that they have seen, that they know, and no one else in the room knows. How fascinating it must have been to sit and to listen, even though you may not have been able to fully comprehend what they are describing. I, I love here in Iowa or, or somewhere else when I come into contact or come across someone who's from my hometown or someone who has visited there and they loved it. I love talking to them about that. It's something familiar. We know. We've been there. They get it. They know how great South Carolina is. <laughs> how special it must have been for Jesus to discuss with someone, to talk with someone. What had Lazarus seen? 
I also find it fascinating that once again here, Martha is the one who is serving. Look at verse 2. There they made him a supper. It's Jesus. It's Lazarus. They made Jesus a supper and Martha served. Martha is once again the one serving. At this point in the book of John, I feel like I, I, feel like I know Martha and Mary. Their personalities are so familiar to us. And in every interaction that we have with them, they stand out. Martha is always up and doing something. She's always serving. She's always going. Mary is sitting down and contemplating and talking and mourning. So once again, here is Mary. Or here, here is Martha. Busy. Serving. It's no surprise to us that Martha is busy. And yet in the midst of this busy scene, as Jesus and Lazarus and those reclining around this table, as they talk, as they laugh, as, as Martha is busy serving, we find Mary. And Mary has something else on her mind. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus is one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. In the midst of this scene, Mary is overwhelmed with, with gratitude. She's overwhelmed with the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. And she gets up and she anoints him. This is not a normal anointing. Anointing something was a familiar enough practice and served many purposes. In Scripture, we see anointing used to set things apart as holy or as chosen for a specific task. We see it used for healing. We see it used to prepare the dead as they are prepared for burial, to make themselves smell sweet, to take away the smell of death. But this is not a normal anointing. It is not normal oil that it is used, and it is not done in a normal way. We are told that Mary then took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Oil of spikenard is indeed very costly. This is not all olive oil. It's not something that was readily available in abundance in Israel. Olive oil is available everywhere over there. I remember a few, uh, actually 10 years ago, I just realized that this, this Christmas break we were talking about this, and 10 years ago I had the opportunity to, over Christmas break, go to Israel. And I remember one of our stops during our tour was to go to uh, uh, one of these fancy places where they make olive oil. And people come from around the world to pick up this stuff. They got beautiful places where they're growing these olives and they're picking them and they show us how they make the oil in the beautiful bottles they present it to us. And I remember everyone on the tour was buying these up, getting as many as they could while we're here in Israel. And, and one of the guys on our tour went up to the uh, workers there and was like, hey, you know, I, you know I, I'm excited to get this. Thank you so much for what you do. If once this runs out and I want to get more, can I, do you have a website? Can I order more online? How can I get in contact with you? 
And the, the lady was talking to goes, yeah, we sell it in a store in the United States called Costco. <laughs> Here we thought we were getting something special that no one else got. And you could go down to your local Costco and pick up the exact same stuff, probably for a lot cheaper. Olive oil was abundant, is abundant in this area. This is not olive oil. It's not something that is readily available in abundance as Israel. This is a specific oil that is extracted from the root of a plant that is grown in India. Not only was it a tedious process to get this oil, but it was a tedious process that was done far away and then had to be shipped to get there, which was not cheap in that day. In fact, as Judas will make clear in his objection in just a few verses, a pound of this oil, as used here on Jesus, was worth at least 300 denarii. 300 denarii. That's not just a large amount to pay for oil. That is an impossibly extravagant amount. In fact, as you do the math, 300 denarii is the equivalent of a year's wages. I looked it up this week. According to CNBC, the average American full-time worker brings home approximately $47,216 a year. $47,000 is the average a year. That is an average year's wages here in the United States. 300 denarii is the equivalent of an average year's wages in Israel. So when you see 300 denarii in this passage, don't think $300. That's still a lot to pay for oil. Think closer to $50,000. This is an extravagant gift. We don't know how. The passage doesn't tell us how Mary came to possess such a treasure. Maybe it was that her family was extremely wealthy. Maybe this had been a gift passed down from generation to generation with pride. Regardless of how she got it, it was an immense treasure. An extravagance that most, even the wealthy people, could not afford. Maybe they could afford a little bit, but a whole pound. And yet notice the overflow of Mary's worship in this moment. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Very costly. And anointed the feet of Jesus. It doesn't say that then Mary took a pinch of this and saved the rest for herself for later. Then Mary took a, a, a little bit, just a cupful. She took the full pound. Mary does not use this oil on Jesus sparingly. It would have been a privilege for her to use any of this oil on Jesus. It would have been a, a sign of great worth to use any little amount, but Mary gives it all. If she would have taken a cupful and poured it on Jesus, everyone in that room would have been moved with awe at how much Mary had just given. 
Mary gives every single drop to Jesus. Notice also John's focus on her humility in the presence of Jesus. John tells us that not only does she anoint him, she anoints his feet and then wipes them with her hair. Not only is the duty of foot washing the responsibility of the lowliest of servants, but in this culture, a woman would never let down her hair in public. But Mary is so overcome that she uses the extravagance of spikenard oil to anoint the feet of Jesus, and she lets down her hair to wipe it off and rub it in. She is overcome. I think it's important for us to pause here and to recognize the other Gospels and their contributions to this story. There are similar passages of Jesus being anointed in all four Gospels. In fact, we see parallel passages to this specific passage in Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13, Mark 14, and verses 3 to 9. And then we see a similar passage in Luke 7, verses 36 to 38. There are slight differences in these accounts, but Matthew, Mark, and John all seem to be reporting this same incident. Luke seems to be reporting on a different incident earlier in Jesus' ministry. But the differences between Matthew, Mark, and John can easily be explained. In fact, they help to give clarity to what is going on. For instance... Matthew and Mark merely mention that a woman anoints Jesus, whereas John clarifies it as Mary. Matthew and Mark clarify that this dinner takes place at Simon the leper's house. John doesn't tell us where we are. He simply tells us that we are in Bethany and that Martha is serving. Matthew and Mark, the perfume anoints Jesus' head, while in John... Mary anoints Jesus' feet. This particular difference is very interesting, and it actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. The fact that she is using a full pound of this oil. And Jesus seems to indicate later on in his response to Judas that Mary has anointed his whole body for burial. He makes that clear in Matthew, Mark, and here in John. In Matthew and Mark, we're told that, that she has broken the neck of the bottle. You don't do that unless you're intending to use everything in there. She uses a full pound of this oil on Jesus. As Jesus is reclining at the table, his body is stretched out away from the table, making it, giving her easy access. And it seems that Mary starts at his head and anoints his head and then anoints his whole body, finishing with his feet where she gets down on her knees, she lets down her hair, and she rubs it in. This is an extremely extravagant show. Extremely extravagantly humble show of worship of worth. Matthew, Mark, and John all tell from their own perspectives of Mary's gift. She responds to Jesus by anointing him. 
In the first three verses of John 12, here we see the overflow of Mary's heart displayed in an abundantly extravagant gift. Mary could have used another oil to make her point. She could have used a little bit of this oil, but she uses the best that she has, and she uses all of it, and she fearlessly anoints Jesus. Mary does not care what others think as she empties her treasure and lets down her hair. Mary's one concern is honoring her Lord. As I study this passage this week, I was challenged. Mary's extravagant gift is a challenge to you and to me. It's a wake-up call to see things rightly. Mary doesn't hold tightly to her earthly treasure because Mary sees Jesus rightly. The question for you and for me in these, final, in these first three verses is what are you clinging to? What are you clinging to too tightly this morning? What earthly treasure are you unwilling to part with? How often when we think of this Christian life do we focus on, on what we have to give up, the cost of following Jesus, rather than on the great worth of Jesus himself? The year's salary that is lost in Mary's gift pales in comparison to the great worth of what is hers in Jesus Christ. Mary's gift here is not coerced. It is not expected. It is not asked for. It is a response to who Mary knows Jesus to be and what Jesus has done for her. Is that not the essence of worship? A response to who God is and what he has done? And if we restrain or hold back our worship, what are we saying about the one we are worshiping? That he is not really worth it all? Whether we respond in song, in word, in deed, or in giving, may it be done not by compulsion or with reserve. But may our worship be free and joyful. In these first three verses, we see a fearless woman. In verses 4 to 8, we see a faithless disciple. It seems like an oxymoron, does it not? A faithless disciple. But here we've seen the extreme extravagance of Mary's gift in response. In the, here we see the extreme extravagance of Mary's gift. And we see it clearly in the response of those who are present. John here focuses on Judas' response, as Judas is the one who vocalizes his objection. But Judas is not the only one who has an objection. In fact, Matthew and Mark make it clear that all the disciples were, reacted similarly. Matthew tells us this, that the disciples were indignant, saying, Why this waste? As Mary responds to Jesus in this way, as she breaks his bottle, as she anoints his body, the disciples are sitting there and they are saying, why is she wasting this? 
But John records for us that it is Judas who vocalizes what everyone else is thinking. Look what he says. Why, this fragrant, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You could have done so much more with that. Why waste it on Jesus? What is unique here about Judas in this passage is not his objection. We've seen that already. All the disciples object in their heads. It's Judas's particular reason for objection. In fact, John goes on here to make sure that his readers know who Judas is. He is a thief and he is a traitor. I find it fascinating that John follows Judas's name here with these clarifying words, who would betray him? This is Judas. Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him? It's as if John cannot mention Judas's name without identifying him as the traitor. They go hand in hand. How painful it must have been to look back on moments like this as someone who was there, to look back with the clarity of the present, to see what was going on with Judas in this moment. In fact, as amazing as it must have been to be a disciple, as amazing as it must have been to walk with Jesus, how humiliating and at times sad it must have been to look back, to remember how he responded, to look back at moments like this where there is something more going on and you have no idea. John goes on to note that Judas's objection comes not from a real concern from the poor, but from his concern for himself. See, Judas was in charge of the money. Judas would often help himself to the money. In fact, Judas's hope here was that Mary, instead of using such an expensive oil, would simply give it to Jesus in order to fund his ministry and to pad Judas's pockets. In fact, here we find Mary contrasted not just with Judas, but with the Judas people, with the Jewish people. I already mentioned that John 12 begins with here with Mary's extravagant gift, her worship, her response to Jesus. It's the result of her faith, and it ends with a discourse on the unbelieving nation and their rejection of Jesus. Mary believes and acts accordingly. And as we will see, the Jewish leaders and the people reject Jesus. And they also will act accordingly. Judas sees Mary's gift as a waste because even though he is a disciple of Jesus, Judas, like the religious leaders and the people at large, cannot see the true worth of Jesus. In fact, it's strongly implied here in John, as well in Matthew and in Mark, that Judas is not interested in who Jesus is at all. He's only interested in what Jesus can do for him. In fact, I find it very interesting that in both Matthew and Mark, the passage that directly follows this account says that Judas leaves this house, he leaves this dinner, and he goes directly to the chief priests. He goes directly there. 
This is the straw that broke the camel's back. He goes to negotiate his betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because he can't have the money from this perfume. It's almost as if in this unique moment, Judas comes to realize that Jesus is not his ticket to a life of fame and fortune. So he decides to fill his pockets a different way. In verse 7, Jesus defends Mary. He defends her against all those in the room who would accuse her. In fact, Jesus seems to indicate that there is something greater than any of them can fathom that is going on here. You may remember, remember in John eleven forty nine to 52 Caiaphas' prophetic words. As Caiaphas is, is prophesying what, what we should do as a nation. It's profitable that one should die for all of us instead of all of us dying. In reality, he has no idea how right he is. He has no idea what he is really saying. So it is here in John 12, 1-7. As Mary and those present do not fully grasp what Mary has done. There is something greater that is going on. She has kept this for the day of my burial. That's what Jesus says. That's an interesting sentence. It's a difficult sentence to understand. What does he mean she has kept this? It's very clear that she has not kept any of it. She used all of it. In fact, that's the whole point of this passage. She used it all. She's not kept any. Not only has she not kept any, but there's no one here who yet fully grasped that Jesus must die. No one knows that his burial is a mere six days away. Matthew and Mark kind of help us understand here what Jesus is saying. It's not that Mary knew something that no one else did, but that whatever Mary's reason for anointing Jesus' body with this oil, God was using her to prepare Jesus for his impending death. This becomes all the more clear in the following phrase, the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Jesus is not here discouraging giving to the poor. He's encouraging a proper perspective. This refers to Jesus' coming death, his resurrection, his ascension. His time is short. In fact, his death is a mere six days away. And Mary may not grasp the importance of what she has done, and how short her time is with Jesus. But unlike so many, she does understand the infinite worth of who Jesus is. And God uses that act to anoint Jesus, to, to prepare Jesus for his coming death. I fear this morning as we look at these verses, that if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we are far more like Judas than we are like Mary. We like to identify with the hero in stories, do we not? But how many of us have ever truly given sacrificially? How many of us would even really be willing to when it came down to it? 
It is not Mary who should be rebuked here, but all those who fail to see like Mary. I fear that if I were reclining at that table, I would be shocked at Mary's foolishness and Mary's wastefulness. In fact, as Judas objects, I fear that I would agree with him. I wouldn't be moved by Mary's devotion. I'd be shocked at her foolishness. But Mary is not reckless. Mary is not wasteful. Mary is right. And if I were around that table, I would be wrong. Jesus is worth every drop of that and more. As we come to verses 9 to 11, then we see a fickle crowd. The word fickle means to vacillate, to go back and forth, never fully making up your mind, never choosing a side. So often as we've worked our way through the book of John, the crowds seem to vacillate back and forth to extremes. From accepting Jesus to wanting to kill Jesus. They cannot make up their minds. Unlike Mary, they cannot see the great worth of the one who stands before them. As we'll see in this passage, eventually everyone will be forced to make a decision. Eventually, everyone will come face to face with the truth and it will come down to a time when you must make a decision. Here in John 12, once the people know where Jesus is, they come. They flock to him. But their interest is shallow. They seem mostly interested in what Jesus can do, not in who Jesus is. In fact, John tells us that they came not for Jesus' sake only. That's a fascinating phrase. Jesus is here and they come not just to see Jesus. That they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. However, as John 12, 11 makes clear, once they see what Jesus can do, they cannot help be confronted with who Jesus is. Once they get into that house and they see Lazarus, who had been dead, standing there alive, they cannot help but come to the realization of who Jesus is. No one else can raise the dead. You cannot ignore that. And many of them believe. Their hearts are fickle and their faith is weak, but their faith is in Jesus Christ. And because of that, their faith is faith that saves. There's not the strength or the amount of faith that saves them. It's the object of their faith. They might have had to see before they believed. But praise the Lord, when they saw, they did believe. How encouraging for you and me, because our hearts are just as fickle and just as shallow as this crowd. But the grace of God reaches even to us. It saves to the uttermost. In fact, notice that Lazarus is so effective at pointing people to Jesus that the chief priests plot not just to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus as well. 
<laughs> what an empty threat that must have been to someone who had just been raised from the dead. We will kill you. I've already been dead. <laughs> Bring it on. I can't wait. I know what is waiting. How dangerous to be associated with Jesus. But how infinitely more dangerous to reject Jesus. The chief priests and Judas fail to grasp what Mary and many others who place their faith in Jesus have come to know, the infinite worth of knowing Jesus Christ. It may have seemed reckless to the families of those who believed in Jesus for them to align with Jesus when those in power have set themselves against him. Just as it seemed reckless to those at dinner for Mary to waste so great a treasure on Jesus. But what they fail to consider is that it is only reckless if they are wrong. And they're not wrong. In fact, this morning, as we look at this passage, we see the reckless nature of worship. Why waste such an expensive gift on Jesus when there are people in need? Why align yourself with one with whom the authorities have declared war? Why throw away your personal dreams and ambitions? But this is a theme that we see all throughout Scripture, is it not? Faith necessarily responds in worship despite its consequences. Why battle a giant with a simple sling because he blasphemed your God? Why risk being thrown to the lions because of prayer? Why risk being thrown into a fiery furnace because of your refusal to bow? Why spend your life being beaten and thrown in prison only to face execution preaching the gospel? Why throw your life away to leave family and friends to go tell people about Jesus? Why face social exile to preach Christ? Why continue to gather as a church in secret, even in the face of persecution? Why risk your relationships? Why risk your finances? Why risk your career? Why risk your life? Why give everything? Why give anything? Because Jesus is worth it. Brothers and sisters, your faith is not reckless and your worship is not reckless, regardless of what the world tells you. It is necessary, it is appropriate, and it is a privilege to worship God. We get to worship our Lord, and that is worth everything. May we not take our call to worship lightly, even when we can worship freely. May we not hold our possessions or our lives tightly. May we sing and give and preach and go and live and die loudly for the sake of Christ. Worship is our right. Worship is our privilege. Worship is our right response to our infinitely worthy God.